The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. Today we are going to be in the book of Esther. We are in a series going through a book of the Bible per week, looking to see Jesus in each book of the Bible. Now, Esther, I, I've read it multiple times this week. It is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and for the life of me, I cannot figure out why it is not a major motion picture. I know there's like B-level versions of Esther, but I mean, I think we need to do Esther with the characters in there. We need to be casting people like, uh, let's see, who's got some good tension? Maybe Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. That'd be bad. Too soon? Sorry. Okay. Um, so, so if you have not read Esther, I would encourage you to read it. It's a very unique book of the Bible because it's, it virtually just follows a story and it is not talking about God. Esther is the story uh, of when people were coming in to kill the Jewish people and Esther, the queen, this beautiful Jewish woman, stepped in the gap and saved her people. But today we're actually going to examine the, the uh, antagonist in Esther. We're going to look at the person who was the bad guy to learn about, for me, probably one of the most difficult topics to deal with, the topic of pride. Now, here's the weirdest thing. If you were like me and you did not grow up in the church, pride is something that we aimed for. Pride was a virtue. I grew up, I'm in the generation X, so I, I, can, I skipped out on being born late enough to be a millennial, thank Jesus, um, but I love you millennials, I'm glad you're here. Uh, so as a Gen Xer though, I was in this, the massive self-esteem movement, and you could, you could tell um, us Gen Xers from other people because when we walk into a room, our body makes it through, but our head gets stuck in a door frame. And, and wherever we go, it's, it was symptomatic of my generation to have this comparison thing going on. And today we're going to look at a case study on pride. So first, we're, what we're going to do is I'm going to read through two sections of Esther. So if you're following along in your Bible, we're going to read Esther chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And then I'm going to just seemingly jump right into Esther chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. And I want to read the whole story of Haman. The story of this man who is against God's people and wanting to kill God's people. And we're going to see his pride. And today we're going to talk about sinful pride and what that has to do with us. So here it is. Esther chapter 3 verses 1 to 6 and then jumping over to chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. After these things, King Asuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him to set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, Mordecai's the good guy, did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom. Chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read, to, read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about 
Brigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Asuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So Haman said to the king, for the man who the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head the royal crown is set. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And we'll stop there. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray and get into the text. Father, pride is so pointed in this story. I pray that you would break through hard hearts this morning like mine. I pray that you would open our eyes to see clearly this morning your word and open our ears to hear your voice through this story. Lord, humble us this morning gently and lovingly. In Jesus' name, amen. So today in this case study of pride, we are going to be um, cracking open a little bit of our souls because the story is, is so fascinating to me. First, you've got this man, Haman, the bad guy, and he gets promoted essentially to prime minister in charge of everything. And then you have Mordecai. I love that name, Mordecai. I feel like you have to say it with a huskier voice. Mordecai is Esther's older cousin who essentially raised Esther. And Mordecai would not bow down to Haman would not bow down. Now, if you are familiar with only our culture, that may not seem as weird to you. But if you grew up in any culture that has that sense of honoring your elders, you know that it's almost instinctive to bow down. And, and each culture has their own thing where you walk in, you honor somebody. In the South, I've learned the, the cultural sign of respect for kids is to say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, right? And this is something that we started teaching our kids in California, not even knowing that God was going to move us to Florida. Because if you have a kid that doesn't say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am in Florida, they get scorned by locals, right? Those southern people who make the best cornbread, they, they'll look at your kid like, hey, don't you teach your kid anything about Jesus and manners? I mean, apparently not. I don't know. I'm a Yankee. But, but this whole concept of showing honor, Mordecai would not do it to Haman. And, and there's something that stands out in that passage in chapter 3. It said that the king had to command people to bow down to Haman. So Haman must have been such a character that the king had to command it, yet Mordecai would not give honor where honor was not due. Mordecai was a Jewish man, and he said, I'm, I'm not going to bow down to Haman. He doesn't deserve my respect and my honor. And then the pride begins to swell up because Haman says, not only am I going to get Mordecai, I'm going to kill all of his people. Now, pride, pride, as we unpack it today, is we're going to see a few things. First, we're going to look at what, what the nature of pride is. Because some of us, if you're like me, you grew up in pride was seen as a virtue. It is only really in the Christian church that people will say that pride is a sin, that pride is a vice. 
So today we're going to define pride. We're going to look at what it is. We're going to look at how deadly pride is. We're going to look at what pride does in our lives. And then we're going to look at the cure for pride. So by a show of hands, who in here is humble? No, I'm just kidding. We don't want to do that yet. We're going to do that at the end. So it, just as a, a fair warning, if you, are, um, if you want to read more in this, the Bible study that I wrote this week that goes with this sermon has a two-page article from, taken out of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and he is probably one of the most uh, perceptive and brilliant writers on this topic. And it's for free. You can download it on the Chapel website or on the Chapel Facebook page, um, and it will blow your mind. And I've referenced it a lot, so I just want to say C.S. Lewis strongly influenced me today, so I don't want to just keep citing him over and over and over again. But we're going to define pride as this from C.S. Lewis. Pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Now, we've all met prideful people. And just as a, a caveat, so we're on the same page, not many of us like prideful people. Not many of us like the people who have their egos and they're strutting them about and they're, they're wanting all the attention for themselves. And we have to understand that with pride, this ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self, at the core of it, it is thinking all about ourselves. It is focusing our eyes inward. It's not thinking about God first and others. It's just always consumed with how can I get ahead? How can I be seen? How can I be liked? How can I be loved? And pride, one of the th ways you can tell if you have pride, and I love it that this sermon came up at Christmas time because we didn't, we didn't plan this out months and months ago. So I, I was like, okay, this is going to come. And then I was going through Esther and God said, pride, preach on pride. And I'm like, at Christmas time? Because pride, what pride does is it causes you to compare yourself to others. See, a, a prideful person is only content when they have more of whatever it is than those around them. So whether it's you being attractive or having money or having status or having power, the prideful person just wants more than those around them. And they find no satisfaction in just having what they have. They might be a very wealthy person, but all of a sudden you put them next to someone who's wealthier and they've got to get even more money. We call this keeping up with the Joneses, right? Do we know this story? There's the, uh, the lady right now who has her Christmas tree, her Christmas presents piled up, and they almost go above the height of the tree for her children. She gets, I think it was like 96 presents per child, and she stacks them all up. And then social media blasts her. And then we are like, look at that parent. You know what we're doing? We're, we're trying to affirm our parenting by blasting her parenting. She only spends like, I think it was $1,800 on all of the gifts. So I, first off, I want to know how she does it, because that's magic. And second off, if you buy your kid a MacBook, it's the same amount of money. But, but our pride gets us to start to compare and contrast. Or how about with, with the cars that we drive? I mean, that one's hard for me because you guys know I love me a good car. And, and I, I'll pretend that my Jetta is fast. But then I'll see like an Audi R8, and he'll just blow by me on Boyette in the back roads. And I'm trying. I'm like, come on, Sarah, go. Sarah's my car's name. Go, Sarah. And she's like, no, I'm just a little German compact car, but you can do it. And she doesn't. And then I think, ah, I wish I just had that car. And, and it's, it's even harder with, because pride, this, this ruthless, sleepless, it's always going to creep in to get us to concentrate on ourselves, to get us to compare ourselves to others. And unless we figure out how to be freed from that, 
sin will creep in along with pride, which is why C.S. Lewis refers to it as sleepless. In Haman, his pride was so damaged, he said, if Mordecai will not bow, I'm wiping out all of his people. If Mordecai is not going to lay down the knee, I'm wiping him out. So we need to talk about something because we have the superiority pride. For those UFC fighters uh, fans in here, the superiority pride would be like Conor McGregor. Or if you're a boxing fan, Floyd Mayweather. I mean, these guys have the hubris uh, of the entire planet. They're the superiority pride. But there's another form of pride, the inferiority pride. The superiority pride is always comparing yourself to be better than everyone else. You're always saying, I'm going to be better looking. I'm going to have more money. I'm going to have more cars. Whatever your thing is of always wanting to be better, appear better, look better, that's the superiority pride. The inferiority pride, we, we all have probably seen these, or some of us are this person, where you have an intense focus on yourself, but it's always on the negative. It's always on how bad you are, how unattractive you are, how unwise you are, how poor you are. And, and here's the catch. These are actually both forms of pride because they're both concentrating on yourself. In one form, the superiority pride, you're, you're coming out on top a lot of the time, but in the inferior, inferiority pride, you're coming out on the bottom. But both are relentless concentrations on the self and they will take our eyes off of God and others. So, this is what pride is, and I, I want to briefly define humility, and if you're friends with me on Facebook, you'll understand my posts recently. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. And here's where the freedom can come in, and here's where we have an opportunity to do this Christmas. You see, I asked my middle son, Silas, I said, Silas, what is Christmas about? Because I feel like as a pastor, I should not blow this question. Like, we should nail Christmas and Easter in my family. But he goes, Jesus, just calm, and presents! So I said, okay, buddy, we're going to try to reboot this question, and you can still say presents, but I want you to say it like this instead, presents, and Jesus! So we're going to try it again. Are you ready? Silence, what's Christmas about? Jesus and presents. I'm like, okay, you're not hearing me. So um, we're going to do this one more time. And, and the kid just thinks that Christmas is about presents. I mean, one year I've told my wife, I'm like, one of these years we're not getting a present for our children. We're going to make them give their stuff away to every other kid and just shame them into the ground. But you know I don't really do that parenting often. Um, But at the Christmas season, we have an opportunity to make it truly about others, to not make it a comparison game. And, and we do this, it's so crafty, and we're going to talk about how crafty pride is in a minute here, but even with our spouses, because wh what do you do when your spouse gets you a gift? You've got to make sure that your gift is on par with their gift, either monetarily or with the amount of effort put in, right? So like, let's say your spouse gets you something amazing, like the gift that you know that like, was made for your soul, it fits into your life, and then you get her, theoretically, some reruns of Laguna Beach. And um, this is a theoretical place or thing that could have happened. Th those gifts are not on par. I know some of the ex expert husbands are like, dude, you blew it. But here's the good news, guys. When you blow it enough as a husband, you actually get better and you can slowly grow by the grace of Jesus. So anyway, but, but we do, we compare. I even go so far as to try to, I go on, I log into my credit card statement, and I try to see what I guess she bought for me, so I know that I'm spending more money than her. That's just pride and cheating. <laughs> that's, 
I'm cheating to love my wife. Okay. I don't do that. I can't ask her what she wants. Because, because, because I struggle with superiority pride, and I just want to be the best and not have to, like, work hard at it. Inferior, inferiority pride are the people who are indecisive. Superiority pride are the people who are bossy and arrogant and jerks. So if you're that couple that, you know, here's how you figure out which form of pride you have. As a couple, if you're part of a couple, go on a drive and say, let's go out to eat. What do you want? If one of them says, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, that's the inferiority pride. You're struggling for pride. You don't even know. You can't even decide. You can't even make a decision because you're so fearful you're going to let me down. Just make a decision, woman or man. <laughs> because then... Because then my bossy pride comes out, my superiority pride, and I'm like, that's it, I'm just gaveling down. I cried a lot this week, okay. (laughs) Here's the thing, too. When you meet humble people, you're not going to know that they're even humble. They're not like what we think. They're not going to be there lashing themselves in sackcloth and ashes, crying, ah, I'm so humble. They're going to be people that you're going to have a conversation with, and you're just going to walk away, as C.S. Lewis would say, thinking that person was very happy and was very interested in me. And, and that's the mark of humility. It's not beating them yourself up. It's that somebody is genuinely so freed from being concerned about their self, they can have genuine interest in you, in the other person. Or if you are starting to see some pride, you can say, okay, wait, I'm always thinking about myself. I'm always calculating about how I can get, a, get better, get above, get ahead, do this, be better, whatever, get further, all about me, me, myself, and I. But a humble person will be concerned about you. They'll want to lift you up and be there for you and encourage you. So here's pride. And across the Bible, the Bible is very clear. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit goes before a fall. The entire Bible affirms this over and over and over again. And now we're going to talk about what pride does. So we've talked about what pride is. This is what pride does. First, pride will make you a fool. And, And pride's and pride's quest to kill you, it will make you a fool. So here's how it does that. Pride will keep you from learning from your mistakes. Pride will prevent you from being able to take criticism. Pride is that thing within us that when somebody brings a mistake to, to our mind or to our attention, we want to justify and defend. We want to push it away. We want to blame others. Pride is what we see in Adam and Eve in the garden. Eve took the apple Adam ate the apple. God says, why did you do it? And Adam points at Eve. And God looks at Eve and says, why did you do it? This is in the Hebrew. She points at the snake. And God looks over the snake, and he's there like smithers. Mm. (laughs) Because pride got Satan kicked out of heaven, if you did not know that. He looked at himself and wanted to be like God. Pride prevents us from learning from our mistakes. A prideful person will not be able to see their mistakes because they're busy blaming other people or other circumstances for the the way things are going. If you are contrarily a humble person, you can learn very, very quickly. People who are humble will learn because when a mistake is brought to their attention, what do we do? We say, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. I definitely think I did that wrong. And we begin to grow. There's nothing that grows us like learning from our mistakes and criticism. But man, is it hard to take criticism. And believe me, if you don't live in a job with a suggestion box, you 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 haven't experienced the joy of that type of criticism yet. A few of the churches that I've been at, this one we have boxes just for for giving on the sides on on your way out. 
but uh, sometimes people drop suggestions in there. And when they drop suggestions in there, my only thing that I want to do is light it on fire um, if your name's not on it. If you give me your name and an email address, I'm good to go because I can hunt you down. I mean, like, to talk, okay? <laughs> to talk. I'm not that guy. But, but if you just write in there something, you know, I can't stand this, blah, 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 and then you just sign it, and, you know, in love, your anonymous brother or sister in Christ. I will literally go outside, get my lighter, and do a teepee Indian rain dance as it burns into the wind. Because I'm not going to give that to my, if it's about worship, I'm not going to give it to my worship guy. If it's about children, I'm not going to give it to my children's guy. I want us to take criticism, but in a helpful and constructive way. I want us to be able to stand and have the, the humility to be able to bring criticism to somebody with love. And with love does not being, mean being a jerk. You know, we've talked about this before. A lot of times Christians will say, oh, I'm just speaking the truth in love. And for those of you who are new to church, if a church person ever starts out a sentence with, I'm just, I just need to say this because I'm speaking the truth in love, be prepared because you're about to get a verbal punch in the mouth. That's, that's the Christian way of smacking people. So you can either plug your ears or, or you listen to them, whatever you want to do. But lovingly and actually caring about the person saying, this is something that I see, and then having the humility to say, let, let, let me pray about this. Let me pray and, and search the scriptures and ask other people if they see this criticism too. This is what humility can do. Haman could not do this. Haman was slighted, so he said, I'm going to kill Mordecai. And then he plotted this plan. Every time he would see Mordecai by the front gate, and he, Haman would not, would not look at himself. Haman wouldn't ask why the king had to make a command that people bow down to him. Haman wouldn't say, why did the king have to command that? I'm the prime minister. Everyone should just bow. That's what we do in this culture. Why does the king have to dictate this? Because there's something wrong in Haman's character. And that forced people to not want to honor him and bow to him. So pride will then make us evil. So pride makes you a fool, and then it makes us evil. Pride will cause you, um, in the foolish sense, to overestimate your gifts or underestimate your gifts. But if, if you're still thinking about your gifts and what you can do, it's still pride at the end of the day. Pride will set you up for failure in life. If you are married in here, pride will affect your relationship every day. If you're the inferior, inferiority pride, you'll beat yourself up and let your spouse walk all over you and make the decision. If you are the superiority pride, you will be aggressive and arrogant, and you will always have to have the way as your way. And every other way cannot be the same, cannot be as valid as yours. This is why it's foolish, and it makes you evil, because pride is the root, as St. Augustine tells us, of every other sin. So every sin that you commit is rooted first in thinking about yourself. Every sin that you commit is rooted in that, whether it's fear or worry or anger or jealousy. So those of you who struggle with anxiety and worry, that's usually because you have an idea of how the world should go and your heart is fretting that it's not going to get that way, the way that you've painted the world, the way that your mind says, this is how the world should be, and if it doesn't get that way, it's going to be bad, so your heart worries. Whatever it is, your heart begins to worry about that worldview because in your pride, you think that you know the way the world should go better than God knows the way the world should go. In your pride, you have painted this picture of your reality, and you're just living in fear that that reality is not going to come to be, which, unfortunately, it does, it does not, or fortunately, it does not at times. Pride is what is at the root of all social evils. Racism is rooted in pride, thinking that one race is better than another. Social injustice is pride, thinking that one class is better than another. And, and we do this 
so quickly and cleanly and calmly, we don't even realize it. I've been at Park Square before hanging out uh, went with the fountain, let my kids just run loose. And this was so fascinating to me in my first six months here. I kept hearing people from Fishhawk say, oh, they live in phase one. And I had no idea what that meant because I'm from California. We just build stuff out there. And I'm like, what is this phase one stuff? Oh, they're, they're phase one. They're Fishhawk trailers. They're Fishhawk this. Yeah, but what is going on? So finally, I asked some of the, you know, the steeped Fishhawk people, the people who bleed fish hockey and blood. And I said, what does this mean? And they said, oh, oh, there's groups of Fishhawk people that look down on other groups of Fishhawk people. And I'm like, are you serious? Because here's what we do as a culture. Sub suburb people look down on like some urban people. Urban people look down on suburban people. The Fishhawk people will be like, I'm never going to live in Riverview. The Riverview people are like, I'm not nearly as stuck up as Fishhawkers. And there's this game that goes around. And then within the group, you're like, oh, well, the Fishhawk phase one does this. Even in my own neighborhood, they're like, oh, well, the owners live on this side of the community. The renters live on this side. And we're just like staring down each other's noses, just down, staring, staring. And guess what you can never stare at when you're staring down your nose at someone else? You can never stare up at God because you're too busy just staring down your nose at everyone else. And this is why pride is evil. This is what makes us evil. And, and if you're thinking, Ryan, this does not sound that bad. Well, it doesn't sound bad until you realize that the same pride that causes a racist flicker in someone's heart is the same pride that causes a racist flicker to pull a trigger. It doesn't sound bad until you realize that the same pride that gets a kid to, to want to be good at soccer, to want to be better than his peers, all of a sudden is the same pride that a young teenage boy will take his own life because he didn't measure up to the construct in his mind of what he should be. This is what pride does. This is how deep pride is. Pride will lead you to favor your view above all others. Here's the next part, what pride does. Pride is the one sin that hides itself. This is why it's so hard to see. Pride is the one sin that hides itself. Think about it. You don't, okay, nobody like has an affair on accident. You're not having an affair and you're like, oh, you're not my wife. Who are you? You don't do that. You know you're having an affair. You know when you're stealing. You know when you're exaggerating. You know when you're doing these things because there's external things going on. Pride is the carbon monoxide, sneaky ninja assassin of sin. It will sneak up behind you and kill you before you even know what's happening. Pride is so sneaky that um, even up till now, okay, be honest, up until now, how many of you have been thinking about other people who need to hear this sermon? right? Because, because your pride will do anything to get the attention. Like, okay, wait, wait, wait. He's coming at me with this pride stuff. This is the only time that pride does not want to look at yourself when you're talking about it. Because then the veil is lifted and you can see the pride in your heart for what it truly is. And you may think, well, my pride's not so bad because I'm just here to, you know, gently segregate and beat on people on Facebook from time to time. I'm not going out and doing like real harm. Oh, no? Do you, do you think pride just, just, just wants a sliver of your life? Pride wants to consume all of our lives. And it is sneaky, and it's working like a serpent, like a poisonous gas that we cannot smell or sense. And the story, as Haman 
was plotting against Mordecai. The part that we didn't read is he goes and talks to his friends and family, and they're like, yeah, we got to kill this Mordecai. Let's set up a giant gallows to hang him from, and we are going to go hang him. We're going to hang him from that. You're going to go get permission from the king, and the family and friends were behind him. They said, yeah, let's do it. We're going to kill him. Since Mordecai is going to slight you, we're going to deal with him the old-fashioned way. And that's when we jump to chapter 6, and it says that the king was having trouble sleeping. So he had someone come and read history to him. If you're ever having trouble sleeping, one of the best ways to fall asleep is get out your audio Bible and listen to the book of Leviticus. That thing will put you out better than any sort of sleeping medication. Because the guy that reads it, he's like James Earl Jones without coffee. (laughs) And this is what the king did. The king had someone read history, and then all of a sudden, history recorded a time when this guy named Mordecai saved him from a plot to kill him. And he said, what's been done to help Mordecai? And the king gets pumped up. I'm going to go help. I want to bless this Mordecai. I want to honor him. So he says, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just arrived to the court to get the king's permission to kill the Jew, to kill Mordecai on the day he was going to slaughter the Jews throughout the land. This is what Haman had arrived for. And Haman, big-headed, superiority pride Haman, walks in, and the king says, oh, come on in. I need to talk to you. I've got something. And the king says, what should I do to a man who I want to honor and Haman, the prime minister, is thinking, this must be me. This is what superiority pride does. It always thinks, this must be me. There's a promotion at your work. What do you think? I'm going to get the promotion. This must be me. It's all about me, all about I, all about number one, all my, me, my. What I think, what I want, what I like, what I want, what I see. That's a country song for those of you guys who are only rappers. Okay? So Haman said, oh, he's going to honor me. So he says, get the robes. Dress, dress the man you want to honor with robes. All the while, Haman's thinking, it's going to be me, it's going to be me, he, he, he put the robes on, and he's like, yeah, and then after you put your robes on them that you've worn, put them up on your horse, and after you put them up on your horse, get one of your noblest people to parade him through the street, proclaiming this man is a man who the king wants to honor, because a prideful person wants to be honored by a powerful person. A prideful person wants to be recognized. A prideful person wants to be honored. A prideful person wants to be praised, and Haman has concocted this plan to be praised and honored above anything else other than perhaps being the king himself. But Haman doesn't know that the king had just read the history book. So the king says, Haman, love what you said. I want you to go do that to Mordecai. Imagine the cartoon jaw drop. I mean, it's like the wolf, you know, where the jaw drops, the tongue rolls out, the eyeballs like, because Haman was going there to ask for permission to kill him. And the king wants Haman to go bless him. And then the king says, and Haman, the noble guy that you wanted to, that you thought should lead the horse, I want you to be the noble guy. I mean, if God has a thug life video, this is it. He's just like, gotcha. And Haman then puts the robes on Mordecai, puts Mordecai on the king's horse, walks him through the city, probably looking at the gallows where he wanted to kill him. This is the man the king delights to honor. This is the man. (laughs) So what's the solution for our pride? It's wrapped up in that story. Because if you're here, you're thinking, okay, here comes the pastor punch. Boom. So if you want to get rid of your pride, you know, go to church. Believe in God. Read your Bible. Pray more. But here's the problem with pride. We already talked about how sneaky it is. And and another problem with pride is this. Religion, religiosity, 
It can help cure some measure of sin. You know, if you struggle with lust, there are some spiritual practices we can give you, and you'll, you can battle through some of the lust issues or, or lying or exaggeration or stealing, embezzling, whatever it is. Religiosity will help stave off many sins, but not pride. Pride feeds on religion. Religion is like oil to the pride fire. There is, let's be honest, no one as nasty of a human being as a prideful religious person. I would rather encounter the most prideful irreligious person than the most prideful religious person. Because, let's be honest, fam, if anyone knows how to stare down their nose, it's a church attender. To judge others, to think that our morals are better, to think that we're better, to think that we deserve this, to forget the whole concept of God's grace entirely. And it's one of my images that I love from a pastor I, I picked it up years ago is, you know, the church is not a place where we're leaning against the cross saying, come be like me. The church is a place where we are desperately in need of a Savior bowing down saying, come on, there's room. And that is a very different posture. Pride, if you try to just deal with it with spiritual vigor and might, will not be defeated. Pride will sneak into your religiosity and get you to look down with more judgment and hate and division than you could have ever managed without it, religion. So what's the solution? Here's what I love. It's all about uh, those robes, you know. Haman said, get the robe, your robes. Put the robes on the one you want to honor. And, and in this story, God forced Haman to be the deliverer of the good news for Mordecai. When the king put the robes on someone else, it was more than just a sign of giving them a high position. When Pharaoh put the robes on Joseph in Genesis 41, it meant that you, you are partaking in my leadership. You were taking my royal robes. You are part of the leadership of this structure. Same with David. When Jonathan gives David the royal robes in, in 1 Samuel, it's Jonathan saying, I love you, and you should be king, not me. Even though Jonathan was next in line to be king, technically based on genetics, Jonathan said, no, you, you should be king. I love you. I honor you. This is what the robes symbolize. It's more than just the... It's more than just the respect, it's all of that combined. For the king to put the kingly robes on someone is a sign of royal affection, approval, and acceptance, and exaltation. Now here's, here's why Haman was excited. Because he thought, in that moment when the king said, what should I do for the one I want to honor? He got to outline what he thought was the recipe for all of, all of life's value. He said, okay, this is it, what do I want? Christmas wish list. I must have been nice because now I get to draft my own and Santa's going to answer it. And he goes through this whole list of what it would take to give him the security and approval he needed to feed the pride monster within him. And then when God flipped the script and the king gave it to Mordecai, it must have been devastating because all that he thought would fulfill him now was given to his, his enemy. And what, what we need to realize is that Haman, Haman did not ask the wrong question. He asked the wrong king. You and I are going to other things in this life to feed our pride. God has actually wired us to be approved of, to be exalted, to be loved, to be royally treated, but not by things in this world. We are wired eternal creatures. We are made, as Billy Graham would say, with a God-shaped hole in our heart. And we, we tend to try to stuff it with 
value and acceptance and approval from everyone but the right king. Haman actually asked the question that we are all asking. How can I get approval? How can I be significant? How can I be worthy? But he asked the wrong king. He asked the wrong king. There is a better king, the king we're going to worship next Saturday, the birth of Jesus. Jesus is the king who came to earth and was stripped of his glory so we could be clothed in it. Jesus is the king who came to earth, and, and where Haman was compelled, Jesus came and was glad to do it. Jesus was here, and he took on our sin so we could take on his righteousness. Jesus was here, and he wore a cloak that would have been soaked with his blood so that we could be cloaked in his goodness and righteousness and cloaked with his eternal gowns or wranglers, if that's your view of heaven. Jesus is the king that you can go to because he voluntarily came to give you the assurance that your soul craves. Jesus is the king whose love is unmatched and unsurpassed. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Saying, I believe in God, is not enough. We have to realize, if we are going to defeat our pride, that God came down to us. The, the knockout punch, the one-two punch, the jab right hook for our pride, is faith that Jesus came to take our sin upon himself, because our sin could not be dealt with in this life. Our desire for the attention of others could not be dealt with in this life. So that's the first part. That's the jab. This makes us grateful. And then we have to know that he was glad to do it and gives it to us freely. That's the right hook, knockout punch. Because then, you are the one clothed in eternal robes, sitting on the horse, being paraded through the city, and you are loved because of what that king has done for you. And this is what all of our souls are longing for. This is the only way to find freedom from the comparison game. This is the only way to stop judging others, thinking that we are the, the, the universe's center. This is the only way to realize that the king who actually owns everything loves me to such a degree that I don't have to compare myself to anyone anymore. And he did it for no, no uh, merit of my own. So now who am I to judge anyone with harshness and anger how can I hold bitterness against somebody when God held no bitterness against me? How can I care where someone lives if God is the provider of all that we have? And for the first time in your life, you'll be free. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I pray that this week um, people here would want to press into you would want to see not only how much you love them and came to die for them, but how much you love them even now in this moment. That you love us so much that you want to remove the sin of pride from around our throats. God, I pray for those in here. I pray for myself that you would help me see the, the way pride has snuck into my life. And I thank you for surrounding me with, with brothers and sisters who will call me out on my garbage. I pray we could all be so blessed to have others around us that will call us out, that will do it with genuine love so that we could be freed from this serpent that seeks to choke life from us and make us a fool. I love you. Talk to you soon.